You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Nat, and today we are so thrilled to share this very spooky episode with you on Halloween. We've got contributors here from Feminist Press's new anthology, It Came From the Closet, Queer Reflections on Horror. I'm going to introduce you to our guests, then editor Joe Valisi will tell you a little bit about how this collection came to be and read a little introduction for you. And then, dear listeners, you are in for a very exciting conversation. Joe Valisi is editor of It Came From the Closet, Queer Reflections on Horror, and co-editor of the anthology, What's Your Exit? A Literary Detour Through New Jersey. His creative and pop culture writing appears in Bomb, Vice, Backstage, Pop Matters, Southeast Review, North American Review, Narrative Northeast, Via, Voices in Italian Americana, among others. He has been a Pushcart Prize nominee and a notable in Best American Essays for his essay, Blood Brothers. He is currently clinical associate professor in the expository writing program at New York University and previously served as site director and faculty for the Bard Prison Initiative. Joe holds an MFA from New York University and MAT and BA degrees from Bard College. Prince Shakur is an award-winning queer Jamaican-American writer, organizer, and podcast host living in Columbus, Ohio. His journalism and nonfiction have appeared in Teen Vogue, Vice, Level, and more on social movements, Black resilience in the face of iconography, and queer culture. His memoir, When They Tell You to Be Good, is forthcoming from Tin House Books. Tucker Lieberman is the author of very trans nonfiction books, Painting Dragons, Bad Fire, and Ten Past Noon, and a bilingual poetry collection, And Kiru is Dead and Not Dead, and Kiru Está Muerto y No Lo Está. Among the anthologies to which he has contributed, Lambda Literary has recognized Balancing on the Machitza, Letters for My Brothers, and Transgalactic Bike Ride. Tucker is frightened by pumpkin spice lattes, which is not to say he would never drink one, since things that are frightening are sometimes good. Previously, he worked for over a decade for an investment company, and this was mostly not scary. Originally from Boston, he now hunts Bogota, Colombia with his husband, Arturo Serrano, where they scheme about how to publish their novels. Sachiko Ragasta is a Bay Area-based speculative fiction writer, sexual and reprodu reproductive health researcher, and sex educator. As a mixed-race, non-binary Nisei, they like to write about light, feathery things such as the limits of the self and the body, mothers, and failed technological solutions for loneliness. They are an alum of the Tin House Summer Workshop, a 2022 Lambda Literary Fellow, and the first reader for Corio Magazine. Find them online at sachikoor.com. And Grant Sutton writes and practices acupuncture in New Orleans, Louisiana. Lors Ma is a writer of essays and art criticism. Her work has been published in the New Statesman, The White Review, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Hazlitt, Electric Literature, and Literary Hub, among others. Carol Narby is a hobbyist writer based in the North Shore of Massachusetts. Their essays and fiction have appeared in Bitch, The Toast, The Establishment, Podcastle, and Glittership. They also contributed a piece of fabricated scholarship to the Anthology of Babel, published in 2020 by Punctum Books. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. These episodes where we've got a bunch of people talking about their collective work are some of my very favorites. And 
I'm going to toss it over to Joe, who's going to read a little bit from the introduction to give everybody an idea of what we're talking about here. What are you, queer or something? I'm eight years old, and though it's my first time hearing the word, the instant knot in my belly tells me it isn't something you want to be called. I'm watching Sleepaway Camp, the at once deeply transphobic and effusively homoerotic cult slasher with my two teenage brothers. We're all stereotypes in our own right. They're cis, straight, sports-loving, girl-crazy wise asses, and I'm the closeted baby brother, chubby, bookish, my brain struggling to simultaneously identify and bury any visible evidence of my lust for the beefy, crop-topped adults on the screen. But at the moment, we're just three kids from New Jersey, sitting too close to the television, gleefully awaiting the next gory kill. It is Angela, the film's painfully shy 14-year-old protagonist, who has this accusation spat at her by Judy, a recently endowed bully who wields her breast like a weapon. Judy's hatred of Angela stems from the latter being mousy, flat-chested, and seemingly uninterested in boys. Angela's late-bloomer status is somehow a personal affront to Judy, whose face contorts with disgust every time she sees Angela not in a bikini, not swimming, not flirting. When Judy calls Angela queer in their crowded cabin, she's actively othering and attempting to ostracize her. It's the early 80s, AIDS is fast making the queer community both victim and boogeyman, and Judy knows exactly what she's doing. In a different circumstance, I'd steal myself from my brother's inevitable borrowing of a homophobic joke for my daily teasing. I learned early on to steer clear whenever I heard Andrew Dice Clay's voice booming through the bedroom door. But when we're watching a horror movie, it seems I most closely resemble the little brother they want me to be. They see my enthusiasm for the genre, my lack of fear watching Freddy Krueger invisibly slash a young woman to ribbons and drag her bloody body across the ceiling, the grin on my face while Jason Voorhees zips someone up in a sleeping bag and beats them to death against a tree, my effortless recitation of creepy dialogue from Children of the Corn as a promising development. It means maybe I'm not as soft as I appear that this perceived toughness might someday translate to me no longer flinching when they drive a football at my bespectacled face. Spoiler alert, it won't. We share an insatiable love for these movies for very different reasons. They want to see tits and blood, while I want to see how the final girl outsmarts and overpowers the killer-slash-monster-slash-demon-slash-whatever, but for 90-ish minutes, some of the distance between us is bridged. Sleepaway Camp's infamous twist ending throws a wrench in things. Angela, we learn, is not only the killer, but is also Peter, forced by his mentally ill aunt to live as a girl and sent off to summer camp, of all places, with no contingency plan for how to deal with communal showers or his roiling hormones. The film's final shot, Angela, naked and bloody from a recent kill, growling like an animal, makes my brothers cackle, less out of shock or disgust than because it has the audacity to give us a distant, lingering view of full frontal nudity. Dicks, of course, are hilarious. They'll soon leave Sleepaway Camp behind and move on to a palate cleanser such as Porky's or Bachelor Party, 
while I'm left with questions I can't ask and a nagging sadness for Angela I can't shake. Despite its bounty of queer themes, Sleepaway Camp is hardly a cinematic ally. It offers no grand social commentary or carefully architected subtext. Rather, queerness is used, even appropriated, as a plot device. At best, it's a sloppy framework for getting the film to its shocking finale. And at worst, it dangerously conflates mental illness, child abuse, and transness. In a society that prioritizes masculinity and increasingly endorses violence as a means to protect it, of course Angela would be driven to kill. Angela, or Peter, isn't queer at all. He's just stepping back into his primal, God-given maleness, or something. While Sleepaway Camp wasn't the first and certainly wouldn't be the last horror film to equate deviation from the gender binary as some nefarious act of masking, homicidal, psycho, Terror Train, Dressed to Kill, The Silence of the Lambs, and Insidious 2, for example, span multiple cinematic eras, yet they all follow similarly exploitative blueprints. It is especially egregious in how simultaneously unresearched and confident it is. Sleepaway Camp is as invested in queerbaiting as it is in fear-mongering, all seemingly in service to make a horror movie that ticks the requisite surprise-ending box. Queerness is a means to an end, and boy, the ending of Sleepaway Camp sure is mean. From this perch, it's hard to deny that horror movies can be, well, pretty fucked up. And yet I, and so many other queer people, somehow can't help but find immense, guiltless, unironic pleasure in them. We're titillated by the genre, even when it actively excludes us from the narrative, or worse, includes us only to marginalize, villainize, or altogether neglect us. In 2011's Scream 4, the third sequel in Wes Craven's meta-horror franchise, a character claims that to survive a modern horror movie, you pretty much have to be gay. On the surface, it's a clever, progressive thesis, but ultimately, it rings hollow. Does the novelty of queerness shield a character from danger because they are unconsidered and therefore underestimated? Or is it simply that queer characters are so seldom found in horror films that their survival is a mere technicality? Later, a character unsuccessfully attempts to save himself by telling Ghostface that he's gay if it helps. Notable efforts at integrating queer storylines into horror have had similarly mixed, even deleterious results. The brutal 2003 French slasher High Tension undercuts its heroine's harrowing arc by revealing her to be a delusional lesbian psychopath who has just murdered the object of her affection's entire family. Darren Aronofsky's ballerina nightmare Black Swan, campy and satisfying in so many ways, is guilty of reducing Nina and Lily's trippy sex scene into a figment of the former's imagination, whittling her down to a sexually repressed shadow. Single white female unfairly hangs Hetty's terrifying break from reality and obsessive desire to merge her life with her roommate Allie's on unresolved sister issues that border on incestuous ideation. And Gus Van Sant's misguided psycho remake places all of its queer eggs in the basket of Julianne Moore's interpretation of Lila Crane, attributing her no time to flirt 
persistence to good old dykedom rather than a desire to find her missing sister. Vincent digresses from the film's shot-by-shot rigidity just enough to allow Moore to get in a nice butch kick to Norman Bates's face when she discovers him in mother drag. It also isn't lost on me that these films' emphases on lesbianism reinforce the fact that queerness in mainstream horror is permissible as long as it's determined by and filtered through the male gaze. So then, how are we to think about the complicated relationship between the queer community and the horror genre? How can we find such camaraderie in the very thing that so often slights us? As a still-closeted, still-horror-obsessed teenager in the late 90s and the early aughts who did not yet know anyone who was out, I worried over this incongruity, fearing that somehow my wires were even more crossed than I knew. Was my affection for horror just some residual self-loathing, a sorry attempt at maintaining that bit of machismo I credited to myself while in my brother's company? Did I need to shed my boyish bloodlust to make room in my brain and heart for more heady, urgent queer pop culture? Worse still, did my chatty, encyclopedic, know-it-all-and-dying-to-share-it zeal for horror actually give my secret away? Thinking about this self-induced anxiety embarrasses me now. But when you're always hiding in plain sight, you second-guess every move you make, every word you utter, every passion you claim. It wasn't until I stumbled upon AOL chat rooms and internet forums solely dedicated to horror that I discovered just how deep queer affinity for the genre runs. I was astounded by how many regular posters proudly identified from behind avatars and witty handles as LGBTQIA+, and was floored by how masterfully they explicated what they saw as queer coding in many of their favorite movies. My first true cyber buddy, with whom I spent countless hours after school and on weekends aiming about all things horror and inevitably queerness, worshipped Argento, Craven, and Madonna. I'd later find out, as we aged and moved on to more public forms of social media, such as MySpace and Friendster, that he was none other than Vogue Boy, who would eventually go viral by posting a video of himself at nine years old, perfectly performing the song's iconic choreography against a green screen of a pre-9-11 NYC skyline. This is all to say, I eventually came to understand that while I was busy fretting over whether being gay would displace me from connecting with the films I loved the most, queer affection for horror was actively being claimed, recontextualized, and integrated into the horror culture and community. And like most things touched by queerness, horror becomes more textured, more nuanced, and far more exciting when viewed through a queer lens. Though the current horror landscape is slowly, slowly telling more queer-centered and adjacent stories, we largely remain tasked with reading ourselves into these films we love to seek out characters and set pieces that speak to, mirror, and parallel the unique ways in which we encounter, navigate, and occupy the world. In This Way, It Came From The Closet is very much the anthology of my cinephilic dreams, a collection of eclectic memoirs that use horror as the lens through which the writers consider and reflect upon queer identity and vice versa. 
These essays don't draw easy lines between horror and queerness, but rather convey a rich reciprocity, complicating and questioning as much as they clarify. The powerful and diverse voices in this collection reckon with trauma, shame, grief, loss, abuse, race, discrimination, parenthood, familial structures, religion, disability, illness, art, love, and so much more. While these essays spotlight each writer's singular queer perspective, their respective representations and analyses of the horror film serve as a kind of universal connective tissue between them and their readers. If current social media and podcast culture are any indication, the threads between queerness and horror have never been this tightly knit nor this expansive. It came from the closet holds space for its writers and hopefully its readers to engage in difficult, often surprising conversations with and about their films of focus. Most vitally in these pages, our queerness acts not as a barrier to connecting with these films, but as an entry point. Like the best horror films, these essays will both satisfy and subvert expectations. And like any first-of-its-kind anthology, it came from the closet, should not be read as definitive, which signifies a conclusion, but as a vibrant continuation of a dialogue that began long before I conceived of and curated this project, and will undoubtedly continue far beyond its pages. Now, Joe, if you want to just kind of open it up. Well, thank you so much, Nat. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank all of uh, these beautiful faces that I'm seeing. Um, I kind of lived inside your brains for a while, and um, you know, given the COVID of it all, um, you know, there hasn't been much opportunity for uh, direct interaction. So it's really exciting, um, though. You know, we're still zooming, but. Um, I'm just really privileged to be here with you and to be having a conversation. Um, so how did this book come about? It came from the closet. The, the short answer is that it's the book that I've been wanting to read for a very long time. Um, and it's a book that didn't exist. And I kept um, not believing that it didn't exist. And I kept waiting around to find it or for somebody else to make it. And then eventually I realized that it was time to be a good gay Virgo and go make it myself. And that's pretty much what happened. And then there was that um, period where I was worried that somebody was going to come up with it or release it during the time that it took to make the book. Because um, as many of you know, this took many, many years, um, about five years from idea to publication. Um, but, you know, the reasons run deep uh, for why I wanted to read this book why I wanted to hear other queer writers considering horror film. Um, as you heard in the introduction, I sort of latched on to my love of horror film as kind of like the last kind of masculine thing that I felt like I could claim during a, a really you know, a tumultuous period where I was figuring out my sexuality and had older brothers who also loved horror, but for different reasons. And um, once I really came into myself, I sort of worried over the incongruity about whether or not um, I could still love horror, or if it made sense to still be a horror, uh, you know, be a horror addict 
and be a queer man um, until I discovered that there was a subculture you know, w within that um, was very actively claiming and celebrating and making and uh, being one with horror. And so um, things really change in terms of my perspective um, from that point. Uh, and I think that the relationship between queerness and horror is just expanding and growing and it's uh, stronger than it's ever been. And it feels like this is the right time for this book. And I'm so excited that we made it happen. And thank you all for helping make it happen. I hope that made sense. <laughs> it did. Good. Um, I would love to ask you all a question. Some, some of you have told me the answer either implicitly or explicitly through your work, but I want to know when everybody here came out of the closet as a horror fan. I, uh, this is Grant. Um, I was never really in the closet as a horror lover, <laughs> really. Because uh, I think um, like something in your introduction that you wrote was about doing it to sort of impress your brother and his friends. And uh, I think it was a way at the time that I could pretend to be participating in like a masculine endeavor that I was really into because you got to see a lot of men in short shorts and halter tops. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess recently since like the, uh, the publication of the book, now people at the gym are stopping me and just saying, oh yeah, you're that horror guy, which like <laughs> feels a little strange, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> Sounds like the intro to a horror movie, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was always interested in monsters and and also in violent themes, but but um especially if they had to do with monsters, a sort of monstrous kind of violence. And and specifically in film, I think. I did I did also read some horror in novels. Um, but but it was a different experience watching them on TV. And one of the earliest films that I watched was Tremors, which was campy, about a giant worm that comes out of the ground in the desert. Um, it, it's mostly funny, but but it also had this sense of of something that is shaking the earth. You know that that it is under the ground and in a sense maybe coming from inside the system, that we can detect it, that it's under us all the time, that we have to be careful that we don't raise our voices because the monster will hear us. I think that that had a lot to do with my sense of, of something that is always just under the surface and always, um, it could strike at any moment that sense it's gonna jump out of the closet and get you. It always interested me. I, I was 10 when I watched that movie. And all roads lead back to Kevin Bacon eventually. Right? <laughs> Always. <laughs> this is Caro. Um, similar to Grant, I can't really remember a time when I was in the closet per se as a fan of horror. Um, but you have reminded me of a time when I was made to feel sort of self-conscious about enjoying horror. Um, it was a time when I was mm -hmm. on a first date. We were sort of making small talk about what genres of fiction we like to read and uh, kinds of films we like to see. And when I told her that I really enjoy horror, she kind of wrinkled her nose and she said, oh, I always think of horror as sort of a childish genre that's sort of a immature, stunted genre. 
And uh, it's not that I was offended per se, um, but it was an interesting remark. And I think that there is kind of, I don't want to say she's right, because I wouldn't say that, you know, horror is unsophisticated <laughs> or childish, but I think there is a childlike quality to a lot of horror stories where they often operate on sort of a fairy tale logic. Um, and they're very emotionally immediate and intimate um, in a way that I think I do actually kind of associate with uh, genres that we popularly think of, at least now, as being for uh, children or sort of for a, a certain kind of emotional um, space, such as, like I just said, fairy tales. Uh, yeah, yeah so <laughs> she made me feel a little self-conscious, but it was an interesting remark. Well, and I think that um, that's really great. I, I think that it it, um, it makes me think of if there's something that I feel like is certainly universal among queer people is that especially when we're younger, we really have to sort of get creative and imagine the possibilities of what our lives can be like. Um, and I think that because horror, the good and the bad um, tends to really, you know, the imaginative muscle is pumping strong um, in horror, uh, regardless of quality. And so I think that there might be something there that connects us. You know, we're, we're sort of waiting to see what's next. Um, we can sometimes guess what's next and sometimes we can't. And I think that that's, you know, certainly true when you um, don't necessarily live the prescribed journey that society says you're supposed to have, right? So, um, I think that that might be one of the reasons or one of the explanations as to why we kind of gravitate towards the horror genre a bit. Yeah, and I'll 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 add in for myself. This is Prince. Um, I kind of thought of a few answers immediately, and then I thought of the truth. It was reading R.L. Stein as a kid, <laughs> reading Goosebumps. Yes. Um, I like so many other people devoured those books, and I think my love for those books tr eventually translated to liking things that were scary or kind of freaky like werewolves vampires um and i think in a way twilight softened my kind of horror brain in a way when it came out um but in terms of film i definitely remember loving uh 28 weeks later and loving the soundtrack and realizing that music and sound could be like a force of fear um and then i also this is kind of a strange one for me at least but in 2016 i got really into Green Inferno by Eli Roth. And I liked the gross out factor of it. And I realized like, oh, I like movies that are so obscene that you kind of want to show them to all of your friends. And that to me means <laughs> it's a good movie. Um, and so I think all of those are kind of moments that pointed to like, oh, like some of the gross shit in these movies, I kind of really like, like when you have to think it's makeup, it's makeup, it's makeup, it's not real. Um, and so I think <laughs> even that feeling in that film made me really like horror. This is Sachiko. I also loved Goosebumps. I have not like thought about that in so long. Mm -hmm, yes. Um, so good. Yeah, I feel like I kind of had horror like forced upon me at a very young age. Um, I have two older brothers and an aunt who like loves all like murder, gore, like all of the things. Um and yeah, I remember like watching all of the M. Night Shyamalan movies, like having nightmares constantly. And I feel like I was not okay with it until I was like in middle school and definitely felt 
I don't know, maybe just because it was like what I grew up with, I felt more of affinity towards it. Um, but I remember, I guess, feeling the like queerness and like different from what all of the other like little girls were watching. Um, I remember like watching a walk to remember with like this group of friends and all of these like white girls were crying and I just could not emotionally connect <laughs> with what was happening. Um, and that was also in the phase where I started like seeking out my own horror films. Um, yeah, and I feel like it hasn't really been until, I think I had pretty bad taste in horror films until like more recently I've been able to articulate like, oh, this is a critique on this thing. And before I was just like, I like being scared, I don't know. Nicholas Sparks books are another subgenre of horror, I think. <laughs> I guess for me, um, so my essay in the book um, was about the birds. Um, so that was the, I think that was the first horror film that I ever saw. Um, and then after that, I think it took me quite a few years to, I guess, like think of horror as something that I could write about or think about seriously. And I guess it's it's to do with that kind of perception of horror as kind of this unserious sort of, I don't know. Yeah. Like a, a genre that's not really, I don't know, I guess it doesn't like merit any sort of like genuine critical attention. Um, so I think it took me a while to kind of come out as a horror fan after that. Um, it was like a few years before I was like, no, like I, I really like this actually. Um, and then I was kind of like, no, horror films are a thing that I like. And I was like, I'm proud to, <laughs> to be out as a horror fan. Um, so I think it took me a few years before like actually coming to terms with that. Yeah. And one of my hopes is that, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily like horror or think about horror is going to pick up, it came from the closet and be, you know, kind of gobsmacked at how beautiful and meditative and, um, you know, serious the book is in a lot of ways. Um, the cover is campy and I, I'm going to be bold enough to say iconic already, but I think what lives inside of it is so much more, um, you know, uh, is so much, the introspection is so uh, sometimes painful, sometimes cathartic, uh, sometimes, you know, some of these are educational, I think, in the best way. Um, so I think that it holds surprises. And I hope that that is what sort of the non-horror person sees um, in terms of like, oh, I can think about horror in this way. Because I'm thinking about this idea that, you know, there's either a shame or self-consciousness to enjoying horror that I think we all recognize and understand. And we probably, you know, it sounds like some of us did that uh, did that ourselves. Like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this. Or I'm not going to like this. Um, and then you find yourself uh, connecting to it in ways you didn't expect. And I also hope that lovers of horror are going to think about those movies in a different way and say, oh, I never thought about, you know, considering Friday the 13th part two in this way, or I certainly never dreamed that I would read an essay um, about a nightmare on Elm Street that, um, you know, unfolds in the manner in which uh, Tucker's does so brilliantly. Um, so I'd be curious to know if you all could share a little bit about how you came to select the film text or the film lens that you are seeing the queer experience through in your respective essays. Um, Laura began doing that a bit. Um, so maybe we'll start with you and you can elaborate a bit more on how you found yourself going back to the birds um, and how it was sort of a formative uh, film for you. 
Um, and so I'd love to hear from everybody about you know, the selection process because that really was part of this writing, right? The, the prompt of the anthology is there and then everybody who submits anything has to think, what movie am I going to write about? And it's not even that you're writing about the movie, but it's rather what film is going to be my companion during this exploration, right? So I would love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, so I guess like for me, I think it was because because my, it's funny because I guess my experience of kind of like, um, you know, watching the film and also having my first kind of queer experience was, um, it, it kind of happened at the same time, you know, I, I watched the film with the girl that I was into. Um, so it was kind of, it was very kind of fused together from the beginning. So when I saw the, the you know, the, the call out for the anthology, I was like, I have to write this. Um, and I think it was something that I'd been thinking about for quite a long time, but I wasn't really sure how to, I thought, you know, it's like quite a long essay. I wasn't really sure if I should pitch it somewhere else. Um, but when I started writing it, it was very kind of, it came really quickly. Um, and it just seemed like a really natural fit for me. And I think also, so there's a bit in the essay when we're kind of like watching the film um, and uh, the, the girl is like, oh, you know, this these characters look like us. And I was like, oh, yeah, they do. And I think like, although that was so, you know, so many years ago now as a teenager, um, but it really stuck in my head, like you could, you know, watch something that really had like no, you know, it wasn't really a representation of you or your experience, but you could still see yourself in it. And I thought that was really interesting. And then it just kind of that seed sort of stuck in my head. And then um, and then I just thought, well, it's a really natural fit to kind of weave these two things together. Um, so, yeah. This, this is Tucker. I've always been drawn to TV shows and movies that are campy. And when I was younger, I didn't recognize what camp was. I just had no idea. I'd, I'd be enjoying something it would be funny or scary and it would have a sense of the absurd and really play it up. But I didn't know that that was camp. I took it rather seriously. And so I was an adult before someone told me that Back to the Future was campy. I thought that was serious sci-fi when I was younger. Um, so in, in a film like, you know, there's, there are so many that I can talk about, but but I, I wrote about Nancy's experiences with Freddy Krueger and you know, looking back on that, there's, there's a comedy to that villain and it does speak to me in a way because there's a sense in which when we are thrust into situations where we stick out, where we don't fit in, we're in an absurd situation and the camp is inherent in it. Like it's not necessarily that we are campy because we're gay, that, that somehow that's inherent to our being or our personality. It might be some of us are a bit theatrical and, and we like to be funny, but, but it's also the, the situation that not fitting in the queerness is ironic or absurd. And so that comes out in a lot of horror films for me. And it actually makes them scarier because it tracks with real life. Like there's something about real life that becomes scary when you don't fit in and you say, you know, this seems like nonsense. <laughs> this situation does not make any sense. And that's the terror of it. So, so that's where um, Nancy's entrance into her nightmares is simultaneously campy and scary. So that's why I chose that to write about. 
Um, yeah, and I'll hop in and talk about uh, the film that I wrote about, which is Good Manners. It's a Brazilian werewolf horror film. Um, <laughs> and for me, I chose that movie, especially because for the last few years, I've been writing a memoir. So I've been writing about family and kind of trying to write about what I consider like these notions of queer displacement. And I really love films that show women as stoic or like sort of hard or not as socially accessible or like this subversion. And so I think that film to me subverted a lot of sort of expected things that you would expect out of like a lesbian relationship, but mainly because it's like a workplace relationship and it's kind of, it's <laughs> interracial and it's about werewolves. So it's just, there's a lot. And, uh, and I love the kind of stoicism of the main character in that so much because I felt like there was so much underlying and my essay is largely about my relationship with my mother and coming out and kind of feeling like I was becoming unrecognizable to her as I came of age. And I saw such a beautiful correlation in this queer horror story between this woman who is like a kind of reluctant mother and my own experiences with coming out to your parents and kind of realizing like, oh, maybe they regret having me or they have a sense of regret. And so to me, it, very, it was very much in line with this notion of reluctant parenthood or reluctant motherhood and how that kind of shows up and can be a violence that uh, queer people experience, but it's also something that can kind of operate and be a tool in the horror space, which I thought was really interesting and I wanted to kind of unpack. Yeah, um, I had kind of like an unusual process with this actually. So I like found the prompt on Lambda Literary and I was like, I love this. This is such a cool idea. Um, but wasn't sure what I was going to write about yet. And a friend had recommended Eyes Without a Face to me. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can just watch this movie and come up with something. Um, and yeah, I feel like it it felt like a unusually smooth process. I feel like usually my writing is not as clean as <laughs> this process was. Um, but yeah, I was just very struck by how there are so many horror films where like masks show up so often. And usually it's like using a mask to hide to then commit some crime or atrocity. And I thought it was really interesting that in this film, um, the this like father this plastic surgeon father is like finding masks to like force upon his daughter um I felt like there was just so much there around like the whole like white standards of beauty thing um and the way that this character is like grappling with the discomfort of existing behind the mask I felt like it the, the queerness was like so obvious to me. Um, and yeah, and I also had been thinking a lot about top surgery and like the kind of, I don't know, the weird, I guess, like gore in becoming as a trans person. And I also like wanted to really, to find a way to explore that through horror. And so, yeah, I was just like really shocked by how, how well the film seemed to like hit all the beats that I've been thinking about. I really love how you just said that the queerness was so apparent to you in your your viewing of the film. Um, and that's something that I think is one of the superpowers that we have, that we can read 
ourselves into or read the queerness into or take the queerness out of something that others' eyes um, would miss or not even think to sort of negotiate when they're when they're watching that or thinking about it. Because um, I think that horror is often um, for a lot of viewers seen as pure entertainment and it's all face value, right? It's very two-dimensional, it's, it's there. Um, and I think that we're, you know, especially everybody in this book is reckoning with it in a much more um, multi-dimensional way. I like that you phrased it that way. Yeah, actually, I was just in preparation for this recording, had gone back and looked at my original pitch. Um, <laughs> so you'll notice, uh, or folks will notice that in my bio, I identify as a hobbyist writer, which is accurate. I'm not a professional writer. I don't even really identify as a writer per se. I write as a hobby. And so it was really just serendipitous that um, the call for submissions, you know, uh, even crossed my mind, even even came to my, my, note, my attention. Um, it was forwarded to me by uh, a friend who is much more of a writer. Um, but of course, I was immediately interested. And I started not with a specific film, but with a figure, sort of an archetypal figure of the blob as a particular kind of monster. Um, because I do have a personal fascination with sort of blobs and slime and kind of just, uh, you know, illegible sort of living amalgamations. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to sort of in the editorial process, the scope of my essay, you know, became sharper, but I was able to focus on two films. So I sort of start with the blob to kind of uh, frame the blob sort of broadly um, as a potentially queer figure. And then I talk more specifically about society, Brian Usna's 1989 film Society as a very particular and very unique um, blob monster film. And then, of course, it, I was, I'm was i looking at the dates because, as you said, uh, the <laughs> process has taken several years and the COVID-19 pandemic hit sort of right as my uh, pitch was accepted to this particular anthology. So, you know, it, I wouldn't call it serendipity because it's not a good thing, but my personal experience of a health crisis during the pandemic became inextricably intertwined with the essay itself and a meditation on my own body as basically a blob, just amalgamation of cells. Yeah. And it was really important to me that we keep that, um, keep the reference to COVID-19 in the essay. Um, that was something that, you know, as I was editing and there were conversations about, you know, is the is the context of when this essay is being written or when the experience is happening um, relevant? Um, I thought it very much was, and I was really uh, sort of happy to have this documentation. And maybe not a happy moment in your life, but I was glad that we were able to ground it in the now, um, especially as you were diving back into these older films. Um, I thought it was really telling and really important. Wait, are we allowed to ask you a question? Yeah. Because I want to. Okay, so I guess <laughs> as the person editing this, were there certain essays or films that you discovered through this editing process where you maybe watched it and you were like, this is unbelievable? Or I don't know, I guess I'm just curious, like, were, was there Unbelievable like in what film? sense? Like, I didn't... I don't know, like, like it was disgusting to you, or you're like, I would have never watched this movie unless I was editing this anthology, or I don't know, I guess I'm just wondering, was there a, a certain weird kind of part of this where you discovered <laughs> something you didn't expect, or I don't know. 
That's an interesting question. Well, I, I, I certainly, you know, I think if you're a horror lover, you can't have uber discerning taste. You have to try everything. So, um, <laughs> so there were some films that I was not familiar with. Um, Good Manners was one of them. Um, I had not seen Society since I was a little kid and grabbed it because the, um, I'm not sure if you all know, well, Caro does, but uh, the, the VHS cover is kind of like a woman dressed in like a cocktail dress and she's kind of pulling her face off in like a, it's like, you know, stretching or peeling off of her. So I rented that when I was a kid and didn't understand the movie at all. Um, so I've since revisited it. Um, most of the films I'm proud to say I, I'd seen and was at least a little bit familiar with. Uh, Jonathan Robbins Leon has an essay about the leech woman, which was a movie I had never never heard of before. Um, his essay, The Same Kind of Monster, is exceptional. Um, and yeah, but I, I, I would say that I, um, was I surprised by anything? I think I was more surprised by approach. So for example, Tucker's essay is one that I come back to when I'm discussing this because it, it is really, um, The Trail of His Flames is the title of it. And it is, um, creative nonfiction sort of at its height. It's experimental. It is about the film, but it is a sideways retelling of the film. Um, and it is it is linked to sort of intense personal uh, experiences that Tucker lived through and is using the narrative of Nightmare on Elm Street and Nancy's evolution as a way to tell and not tell what is happening in this moment. So I was, I was, um, so it's a great question. I think I was more excited and uh, surprised by approaches uh, to the films. Um, Grant's essay is also one of those films. I, I, I <laughs> it's hard to say what is anybody's favorite Friday the 13th because it's kind of a shoddy franchise in a lot of ways and had so many restarts that don't make any sense and don't follow continuity. And a lot of people are purists going back to Kevin Bacon. They think only of the first film. Um, but uh, Grant's essay actually focuses on part two, which I feel like is an underrated sequel as far as part twos go. Um, and I'm going to let Grant talk about that because he still has to answer the question. He's not getting away. Um, <laughs> but things like that. Like I was surprised by approaches. Um, and that really was sort of at the top of mind when I was selecting work. I mean, I think I received about 240 pieces, um, which is a good number for a collection wow. that eventually had 25. Um, and we actually expanded the collection. It was originally going to be 12 to 15 pieces. And I told Feminist Press, that is impossible. I need to, <laughs> I need to have more. Um, and so we made more happen. Um, and there was a lot of really fabulous writing that just didn't tell me anything new or surprise me. And that was kind of one of the, um, or the, the paramount, uh, thing. Like I need to be surprised. I need the reader to be surprised. I want the reader to seek out the film though not mind being spoiled by what happens in the film, but I also want them to think about it in ways that they would not have otherwise. Um, I had to turn down and resist a lot of Elm Street part two because that's the quintessential queer, you know, horror film in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Um, I was worried about the sleepaway camp 
submissions, but of course the essay ends with the most spectacular sleepaway camp essay that anybody could have asked for by Viet Din, Notes on Sleepaway Camp, which um, is a play on Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp. Um, so yeah, I could obviously talk about this one topic for like a, yeah, for a whole hour. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of good work that came along, um, but it didn't satisfy my need to be surprised and to be um, kind of exhilarated and you know, heartbroken and um, all the wonderful things that um, I think come out of this book for readers. And especially since I would be rereading it and living with it for so long, I needed to oh, really yeah. be mindful of the work that I chose. And some essays, you know, I worked with the writers for many, many months or even a year to get it just right, right? And sometimes there was kind of, suturing of drafts uh, together and multiple pieces. I would come back and say, hey, I actually thought, what if we splice these, you know, these two drafts, right? Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. And other pieces came kind of fully birthed. And, you know, so that that was part of the thing that I had to think about as well. Like I have to live with and convince feminist press that these are the right pieces. And then they're going to want to know that the reader can be convinced that every piece in this book has merit and is worthwhile. And the standard for me was every piece has to be somebody's favorite piece. And that's how I kind of went about it. So Grant, we're coming back to you. If you remember the question at all after all this time. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I don't know how anyone improves on Scream Queen, like the documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street too. So, yeah. I, you know. How do you improve upon the person's actual experience? But um, totally, yeah, I don't know how unique I am in that I had already written this before I even got the prompt. Like I had written it for myself and didn't really know what I was going to do with it. And a friend heard of, you know, Joey's call for entries and pushed me to actually sent it for me <laughs> without asking. <laughs> Um, pretty much. Thanks, Morgan. Uh, but yeah, mine was motivated by, like, I'm 41. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, like, so a lot of the ambient fear that I grew up in was like AIDS and slasher movies and the Reagans and things like that. And there was a lot of stuff that I had not really dealt with or thought through. And the thing that happened in my life was I started taking prep and I didn't really realize or prepare for like what level of grief and mourning I was going to go through once I started that when I realized that so much of my romantic and personal life had been dictated by the fear I had around having sex with people. Uh, and so I just started, I was on a date with someone that I really liked, which is the frame of my story is basically like a, a kind of horror story. Um, and I was talking about it with a friend afterwards and they were like, it's really odd that you don't conceive of your dating life as a rom-com. Like you think of it as a horror movie <laughs> where you're always kind of scanning the periphery, like waiting for something bad to happen. And so I just, I thought about that and started writing more and more about it. Um, when I started it, slasher seemed like the obvious like subgenre. And then, you know, I really loved the Friday the 13th, the first two especially. And the second one is significant in that it is the one where Jason actually becomes the killer. The first one is the mom. Uh, and I started Spoiler. it by, 
Yeah, sorry. If you haven't seen it now, that's your own fault. <laughs> no, you spoiled it. <laughs> well, you can pay extra close attention to all of the things that are happening in the subtext then. Um, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, like I started feeling that I was really identifying with Jenny, who's the final girl in part two. But through writing it, I realized that I was much more identified with Jason, especially with regards to sex and sexuality. Uh, because he's a character who essentially gets stuck in his unresolved sadness at watching his mother get murdered and his anger and kind of gets stuck in that place and doesn't develop out of it. And prep for me was the thing that kind of helped me break through and recontextualize a lot of my life. So yeah, so this essay was like an exploration of that. Um, so yeah. <laughs> That's great. And I'll say for myself, um, I I was so deep in the editing process and worrying about the work of others for so long that I didn't even know if I would write my own piece um, or just write the introductory essay. Um, and I kept kind of like, you know, uh, chastising myself a bit and saying, you know, no, you, you have to, you can't, you can't put the work out. You can't um, demand work from people and say that this book has to exist and not um, not show up yourself. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. <clears throat> and, you know, sort of simultaneously, um, I was enduring sort of a real life horror movie of uh, the surrogacy process that my husband and I were going through to conceive our son. And we had many, um, many losses, and there was a lot of blood and a lot of trauma. And um, <clears throat> I had spent some time trying to write you know, some incredibly sentimental piece about the situation. Um, and I stopped and I said, you know, I can't do this. I felt icky about it. I felt like, especially since we were still going through the process and still trying, it felt almost like I, I shouldn't summon these demons to me, right? Um, so, but I knew I needed to deal with it somehow. And so I, um, decided to write my own horror screenplay. I said, let me take what's what's here and let me um, dramatize it in a way that's authentic to the experience. And then let me bring in, you know, a Rosemary's Baby, Omen-esque occult angle and, you know, go in a direction that is unreality, um, but still has something to say about the experience. And it was cathartic and it was, um, it's turned into a piece of writing I'm really proud of. And then because I wrote that screenplay, because I fictionalized the experience, I found it quite easy to actually go and sort of work backwards and write my own essay. Um, and I was sort of juggling different film options. And then I suddenly remembered a moment from the film Grace, which is a great movie and everybody should go see it. I believe it's pretty, um, you know, I think it's a pretty obscure. I don't know that it has um, the audience that it deserves. Um, and, and it's a woman who uh, loses her uh, loses her loses her unborn child um, in a car accident and uh, carries the baby to term and kind of wills the baby back to life um, through breastfeeding it. Uh, but then it turns out that little Grace does not need milk. She needs blood. And she begins to literally eat mama um, slowly, first her breasts, and then it gets worse and worse. Um, and so I suddenly remember that film and I thought, wait a second, like 
when I first saw this movie, it had no relevance to me or my life or my interests or my writing, um, but I'm haunted by some of the imagery and I went back to watch it. And as, you know, as sort of um, exaggerated of a film that it is, obviously it's a zombie vampire baby movie. Uh, it sort of held this kernel of truth and had something that I could really connect to. Um, and so that's how my essay came about. But it came pretty late in the day, um, pretty shortly before the book was due to Feminist Press. Um, and I sort of had one of those um, wonderful things that we all that we all sort of hope for as writers where you sit down and it kind of pours out of you and it comes sort of fully formed over the course of a few weeks. Um, so yeah, so I so I did force myself to do that work. Um, and I'm glad that I did because I don't know that the book would have felt complete. Not that my voice, you know, is the thing that completes it. It's not the last part of the Hellraiser box or anything like that, but it's, um, you know, for me, it felt like I, I couldn't in good faith put it out into the world without my fingerprint on it in that way. Um, and from there, if I want to ask another question of you all, I'm curious about and I think a lot of writers will be curious about this. What was the process of writing about a film? Um, it's not something that, you know, unless you're a uh, film critic or you're really addicted to your letterbox, um, you probably don't review or think about films in, the, in this way often. Um, and I imagine that there was both a challenge and a delight in trying to represent a film in a way that connected to and uh, nourished the experience that you were writing about. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Who'd like to start? I can start, this is Tucker. Great. You know, I, I always worry that I misremember works of literature and film, which I, I guess is, is true for everyone because we can't memorize every single line of dialogue and we're always going to tweak something in our memory and make it make sense for us. So, you know, of course I did have to go back to the original film and I also watched a documentary about it to understand it better. And so I learned more about how the film itself works. And in doing so, I learned more about my own memory that I was trying to work into that story because I was telling the story of myself. And, and it was a matter of remembering myself as a teenager watching that film Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. And also memories of myself later in life when I was 35 and I'm telling a story about myself then. And I'm also integrating that with the film as it is. So going back to the film and using that as a structural mechanism to tell my story, um, you know, required me to step outside myself because I'm not telling fiction. I'm not reinventing the story. I'm tying the story to a story that already exists. So I, I felt that it was um, you know, interesting to use another work that way. Yeah, I was interested to read other people's work too. And I'm curious about who had like a really intense experience with the film, like from childhood or from whenever the event transpired previously. Cause I sort of looked at mine as, you know, queer kids are like dropped out of a space shuttle into our spaceship into families all over the world. And like, they may or may not, even the most well-intentioned parent, like may not know how to parent that 
that kid. And most of us had to use, whether it's music or film or, you know, whatever to parent ourselves. Um, and so that was like a really interesting part of this experience for me was to go back and take a look at what exactly was appealing to me? Like, what did this film teach me about? One thing I think about when I read everybody's essay is like bravery. Like there's just so much bravery in this book and like how people have used these different films to like have the courage to like survive their very specific person-shaped experience. Um, I'm curious if anybody, you know, just knew immediately <laughs> what they were gonna pick. I think for me, like I knew, I knew what I, the film I wanted to pick, but it was more like because obviously the first time I watched it, I was eighteen. Um, so my, I, I had to kind of go back and rewatch the film quite a few times. Um, and I, so I'm, you know, I'm primarily a nonfiction writer. I write about film in this way a lot. So it wasn't so much that that was new to me, but it was more like the approach for this specific thing felt new because I was sort of. I guess like revisiting a film that I'd already seen quite a long time ago so it was like how I saw it now compared to then and actually I was surprised by the way that it was so obvious to me watching it now that the relationship between those two characters is just so gay but I was like at the time I was like <laughs> but at the time I was like oh well, you know, I think they're like they seem like they're into each other but then like watching it now I was like oh it's so obvious um so I guess it was it was interesting in that way to see a sort of maturity in my own viewing and like a shift in perspective that way, I guess. Did you feel like inserting yourself into writing about film was a challenge? Like having to actually put the eye into it in this way? Um, honestly, no, not really, because I, I think I've, I've done quite a lot of like similar writing before. So I was mm -hmm. like sort of the like my own process for doing it like watching the film like making notes of the scenes and then like a you know like making notes of my own scene that I think would fit with that one and the patterns of the essay um so I guess it wasn't that much of a stretch and I think it was it felt very clear to me in my head I think it was one of those very rare like very good writing experiences where it just sort of it really naturally flows and you're like wow I'm a genius this is great <laughs> You know, so um, that's what we all hope for, right? So, yeah, you think, why stop now? Let's make it a book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Until you hit page yeah. 20 and you're like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, time to stop. No. <laughs> 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 and, I'll, and I'll hop into because I kind of agree with Laura. And I'm also thinking of something that Grant said earlier. Like, I've done film writing in the past. And as other people were talking, and I was kind of trying to think of my answer, I think the difference for me was that. I've written about other films through like a black queer lens and there's always kind of a sense of fear or mortality there because I do think as you come of age as a queer person or trans person or person in the LGBTQIA community, I think a part of that coming of age is performing yourself out of the fear that homophobia or transphobia puts onto you and how like navigating that is its own kind of terror and horror. And it's something that you have to kind of turn away from. And like, I wrote about the film Moonlight a few years ago. And to me, like a lot of that essay is scary because it's about me contending with like, what does it feel like to be, feel like you've been erased your whole life and then suddenly have this representation that means something to you. And I think using a specifically horror-based lens to kind of look at my life was really, I don't know, kind of humbling. It allowed me to look back at my inner child. It allowed me to kind of acknowledge these moments where I was very afraid. 
as a younger kid and to understand that my queerness in some way was part of why I survived because I'd already experienced these inner moments of horror. So when these things were happening in my family that were really difficult and trying and sad, I think it gave me like this extra kind of capacity to kind of navigate it in a way that, I don't know, forced me to really look at the internal. And so kind of watching good, good manners really, I don't know, open me up to kind of thinking about horror in a way that can, I don't know, be a sort of liberation, confrontation, and also something that is like simultaneously dangerous um, because I kind of view like that movie is essentially about a mother who translates her love for her lover who's gone onto this child. And that's essentially what I kind of dealt with in my own way with my mother and my father. And because of my queerness, that kind of, it kind of mutilated that journey in a way that I thought was like worth writing about. And I think the horror lens lent itself to that kind of um, searching really well. And so I, I really enjoyed it and it made me kind of want to figure out how to do it more. Yeah, that reminds me, I came across your Moonlight essay and loved it and then reached out to you about possibly writing something. That was uh, back yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is an area where I, I kind of feel like maybe my piece falls a little bit short because I'm very, even though I'm an avid viewer of films, I'm definitely not a film critic. I don't have, you know, I'm not a cinephile in the sense that I don't have an extensive knowledge of kind of the history and technical context of filmmaking. Um, so I kind of settled into, I guess, the voice, I mean, my own voice as a, as a lay viewer of films um, and particularly in discussing society, which is kind of the piece that I fix, fixate on most closely um, in the essay is uh, working in kind of the questions that come to mind, kind of the holes in the narrative. And I don't mean plot holes. I just mean sort of, uh, you know, places where there are una unanswered questions um, so I start from there, sort of, you know, what is it like? What is the subjective experience of these monsters like? You know, why is the spectator asked to approach the film or approach the story and its characters in a certain way? You know, we're judging sort of non-human entities according to human morality or human social norms is one of the things that comes up in the essay. Um, so that's kind of where I, I approach from is, you know, when I'm viewing a movie, literally what is my thought process? And it's usually asking those kinds of questions. Um, and then something else that I did was to spoil the entire climax of society um, <laughs> for a very particular reason to kind of drive home the idea of indescribability because I can just describe verbatim exactly what happens on screen at the end of society. And it doesn't, I don't even consider it a spoiler because it doesn't even begin to do justice um, precisely because of the nature of film as a medium, you have to see that happen. You have to see those mm -hmm. images um, on, on screen and in order to uh, have any impact. Um, it's not something that can be described, um, you know, in hindsight, it, it, it has to be experienced. Well, as your editor is speaking, I'll say, wait, where you think it falls apart, I think it excels. I think that you do a, a really fabulous job of representing something that is almost impossible to represent. Um, so good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, it's very kind. Yeah, I had a lot of 
fun writing this piece. It was pretty outside of my comfort zone. I don't write a lot of nonfiction. I mostly write speculative fiction, which is very different. Um, and I think part of it is it's just like hard for me to write nonfiction. Like it feels so vulnerable. And I think fiction allows me to approach a lot of things um, that otherwise feel like really unapproachable. And I actually found that like using a film kind of allowed me to do a similar thing. And I was um, like kind of along around the time that I was working on this essay, I was also working on a nonfiction chapbook, which um, has vignettes of like my childhood with the movie Battle Royale and Kill Bill. And so that was kind of my first experience, like writing about film um, and incorporating it into nonfiction. And I found that just like focusing on image was a really great way for me to be able to kind of like connect with moments of my own story and kind of, um, I guess like take inspiration from tone and style in these films and yeah it was something that was really fun to do with this film because Eyes Without a Face is like black and white it's pretty um there's a lot of restraint which I enjoyed um writing from that place as well but yeah I also had a really hard time I guess like knowing the balance of like what do I need to just describe versus like where should I put kind of my own interpretation of what's going on? Um, so yeah, that was definitely a challenge and it was really cool like seeing how everyone else in the anthology did that. Great. I am, um, I'm curious if anybody or if everybody um, has a, a sort of, you know, writing about horror movies and watching horror movies exists in one space, but um, I'm curious about speculative or horror uh, forward novels or thrillers um, that you find to be particularly um, particularly exceptional that you might recommend either as something that you are currently enjoying or that you have enjoyed like a favorite um, since we're thinking about the spooky season because um, I find that I I you know I, I too was a, a complete you know R.L. Stein devotee when I was a kid and I read all that fear street and all those goosebumps. And, um, but I, I, I think as I got older, it sort of fell away and I became more about serious literature. Right. And I, and I was, you know, not thinking about, um, genre literature in the same way. And it's something that I think I want to dip my toe back in. Cause I'm so like, so, uh, so immersed in horror film, but I find myself not always uh, knowing how to seek out or where to start. You know, I certainly read, you know, my Silence of the Lambs and my Miseries and my Hannibal's and you know all those things. Uh, the connection being everything that got turned into a movie. Um, but my my uh, my familiarity with genre fiction is um, a little skimpy. So I'm curious if anyone has recommendations, especially if it's horror forward or, you know, suspenseful. Uh, so the most recent horror novel that I've read is Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, mm. um, which has been getting a lot of press, very well-deserved yeah. press. Um, but I do highly recommend it. Um, it's uh, in the vein of, of um, post-apocalyptic horror. Uh, it's 
uh, sort of a zombie-esque kind of apocalypse. And I'm not usually uh, the biggest fan of zombie or zombie adjacent uh, fiction, but I find it, I found it to be really engrossing. Um, it's, it's very well paced and it's very character driven and it's really the characters that make it so compelling. Um, so that's what I would recommend. I would recommend Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. Um, mine are, I guess, like pretty boilerplate, I would say. But yeah, I've been rereading Shirley Jackson, like the tiny book of short stories and, mm. you know, Angela Carter, like Bloody Chamber is amazing. And, you know, if you just want some suspense, like I've actually been reading the Patricia Highsmith, like writing suspense book, like her craft book, which I had never heard of and just found on thrift books one day. And that, especially if you're interested in writing, she refers a lot back to her own work and her work, though often regarded as like being very, very queer and very suspenseful. There are some truly horrific stories in her <laughs> backlog. So I think that's worth a visit too. Um, I would also always recommend Shirley Jackson as well. Um, but recently I think the, and it's not a novel, it's a short story, um, but I think this is a great piece of horror fiction. It's a short story called um, House Sitting by Bennett Sims. Um, I think it's in his collection, White Dialogues. Um, and it's so good. It's it's all written, um, so there's this guy, it's all written in the second person um, as this guy who sees like a, an ad for someone who owns a cabin in the woods and needs someone to house it while he's away on vacation. Um, and it all kind of goes from there. I don't want to say too much more about it because it's, it's so good. Um, it's like psychological horror and it really creeped me out. And I things don't genuinely tend to scare me that much, but I couldn't sleep the night after I read it. So I think that's that's pretty good. <laughs> if we're looking for something that's come out recently, there's an indie book called Darknesses. It's a bisexual vampire story by Lachelle Seville. <laughs> and it is set in Kansas. So it had never occurred to me that there might be vampires in Kansas, but apparently there are. So <laughs> that's just a fun story I picked up recently and, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was very well executed. Um, I don't read a lot of horror. I really want to start reading more horror, um, but I read a lot more like speculative fiction. And one collection that I recently loved that I cannot stop talking about is Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century by Kim Fu. Um, and while it's not like explicitly horror, there's like a story that has uh, the Sandman makes an appearance. There's a lot of, it kind of like dips into a lot of different genres and it's just really, really spectacular and also like largely character driven. And there's some like queer stories in there. It's really, really good. Um, and I, I also need to read or would like to read more, but um, the last book that I would say that I read, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the novel that the film was based on Annihilation. Um, it's because I love Natalie Portman and I love cosmic horror. So um, <laughs> I read that and I was like, oof, this is way wilder than the movie. Um, and so that was kind of the last thing I read that felt like it really jarred me on like a sort of suspense or horror level. Ted Chu is um, amazing. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was working on a on a piece for something else that was asking me about uh, books from my childhood. And I found myself... Um, focusing on my obsession from like ages seven to like 12 with um, movie tie-in novelizations of uh, 
films. 1992 was a particularly excellent year for this. There was Candyman, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is kind of funny because it winds up being, you know, like a very like simplistic, um, like summarized version of the movie, which of course is in some ways very closely, um, closely adapted from Bram Stoker's novel. Uh, but during that process, I bought the single white female or what I thought was a tie-in, but it was actually um, just the original novel that inspired the movie, Single White Female Seek Same. And it is crazy. It is like, it is the, like it is the same outline as the film Single White Female, but it's more of this um, early 90s or late 80s um, gritty New York City crime novel um, that has this like detective character who's like on the trail of the Jennifer Jason Lee character and um, things do not go very well for the Bridget Fonda character. I would recommend it. It is something that I just um, just revisited um, and was thinking about. I was like, whoa, I forgot what a shock to my system it was. I mean, debatable if I should have been watching Single White Female at 10 years old anyway, but we'll save that for another time. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. And when I came across the original source material, I was really rocked. I was like, this is, oof, I've never seen um, or read things like this in a book. So in some ways, um, the book was way more, um, you know, was much more of the inappropriate um, feast for the senses than the film itself was for a 10 year old boy. Um, I'm curious if we could go around, I wanna hear from everybody, um, who they think, who or what they think is the queerest of our horror villains or baddies. I'm curious who, who gets the title, who or what gets the title as queerest villain or monster or thing or. Mm, I mean, I'll jump in. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the 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 twin head thing and malignant. Um, I don't know. To <laughs> me, felt very queer. Felt very. <laughs> I don't know. I just really love that movie. So that's the one that immediately came to mind. Um, or maybe Jigsaw. Like, there's something super fucking vindictive and shady and over the top about Jigsaw. Um, so yeah, those are mine. Jigsaw made me laugh out loud. <laughs> so I'm glad I was. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what specifically is very like gay to you about him? But yeah, I think it I think it tracks. Um yeah, Freddie is also like <laughs> preposterously gay. Like all the puns and just like being he's very like self-interested and like does like some pretty unnecessary, like flourishy kind of kills that are specifically tailored to each victim, which feels very gay to me too. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, after reading this anthology, I saw the blob in a new way. Uh, Carol has made the argument for the blob being very queer or, or really inherently queer because of the lack of boundaries, sort of the definition of queerness, um, the, the constant morphing and changing and, and being perceived inherently as a threat, even though we don't know exactly what it is. So that was interesting to me because I have watched the blob multiple times. I was always getting that on VHS, the 80s version in particular, but I'd also seen the 50s version. <laughs> and, and yeah, now, so having read Caro's essay, I, I now understand that more on a, on a different level, the shapelessness of it. 
I'm going to vote for the blob as queer villain. I think I would probably go with, I, I don't know if this counts and I actually can't remember which film it is, but has anyone seen either Brain Damage or Basket Case? Mm -hmm. I feel like that, which one is the one where there's like an entity like attached to the guy? Is it Brain Damage? Or, oh, yeah. Oh, oh Basket yeah. Case. I think that would, I think that would be my answer because I think the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, this is, this is queer. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, I love that. Oh, film. the thing that attaches to the front of the face. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, oh yeah. Very queer. It's one of the two. I think I get like mixed up in my head, but like the, maybe both of them. So like the, yeah, the entity in, in those is just, yeah. <laughs> very, very gay and very evil. <laughs> yes. No, it's a basket case, right? Where they're twins and they're separated. <laughs> Do you have a? Oh, maybe that's brain damage then. I'm so flattered by Tucker's answer, <laughs> and now I'm just like, I I don't know. I don't I don't want to say who's the queerest. I feel like all monsters are queer. I know that's a cop out. <laughs> now I'm thinking a... because of because of Laura's answer about uh, the creature from. From brain damage, I'm thinking about face huggers, and that just seems way too obvious. The, the face huggers from Alien. I'm gonna say Hal no, 9000. I'm gonna my answer is gonna be Hal 9000, and I'm not gonna elaborate why. Okay. He's a gay computer. I'm not gonna. I don't know why he's gay, <laughs> but that's how he reads to me. I'm also not sure if this counts. I don't know. Horror is also like an amorphous and. Uh, permeable genre but i feel like takako chigusa from battle royale is also like a very queer character just like the yellow tracksuit and i also love like prince thinking about like being vindictive as a queer quality <laughs> like mm, i revenge. fully agree <laughs> yes <laughs> i always got serious vibes off of pinhead um, and I didn't, you know, like, it seemed like he was sort of hiding behind his kinks a bit too much, but I, but I, I, I am getting that vibe and I'm really excited. Um, I'm not sure if you've all seen the trailer for the new Hellraiser, which has a, uh, trans actress now playing a pinhead, which I think is really cool. And it directly calls back to the hellbound heart, the original Clive Barker story, which, um, very definitively, uh, describes, Pinhead, who is not named a pinhead, it's actually the hell priest, um, in sort of androgynous terms and sort of has the, I think, I'm going to butcher the quote, but has the breathy voice of a young girl, but the um, body or the body's more masculine or there's something, I'm getting it wrong, but the trailer is pretty cool and seems to honor that, that aesthetic. And of course, you know, Hannibal has now been made um, unequivocally queer. I think we were sort of, uh, the possibility was dangled with Anthony Hopkins in the role, but once Brian Fuller redid it as a series, I think, you know, now it's just, now it's just concrete. Um, I think maybe the last question that I'll ask everybody is if you want to share a bit about what you are currently working on um, or have just released and are celebrating. I'd love to hear what is uh, on everybody's plate or what you're putting out into the world or hope to put out into the world next. 
Prince, we'll start with you. You've got you've got a big thing to share. <laughs> I had a feeling you talk do about. <laughs> um, well, um, for those that are out there, my name is Prince Shakur. Uh, I have a memoir that's coming out the same day as this anthology. It's called mm. They Tell You to Be Good. It's coming out with Tin House of Books. Um, I describe it as my political coming of age in Obama and Trump's America and tracing my family's history post-independence Jamaica. Um, and right now I am working on final edits for a novel for my literary agents um, because when lockdown happened, I thought I need something else to work on. Um, so yeah, those are big things that are happening. I'm going to be going on the book tour in like a week and a half and can't wait for the It Came From The Closet event um, on October 5th. I'm ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're a New Yorker now, right? You're here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As of last week. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. This is Tucker. I'm also hopeful I can come on October 5th in New York. I'm coming from Bogota, so, so it's a journey, but I think I'm going to make it. And oh. three days ago, I released a novel. It's called Most Famous Short Film of All Time. So it's not actually about film. Um, <laughs> or it, it is uh, about a particular short film, but maybe not what we usually think about as uh, horror films. It, it's about the Zapruder film of the JFK assassination, but it's a novel. And you know, it's about memory and how memory is or is not like film. We play it back and it gets a little bit different each time. So that's what's going on over here. Congratulations, that sounds great. Thank you. Um, I just finished uh, edits on an essay that's published um, in Granta and it's I interviewed um, the photographer Corinne Botts um, about her sort of photograph series called Haunted Houses. Um, and she basically went around um, sort of talking to people about the, the ghosts that they had in their houses and recorded some like, um, like oral histories um, and took pictures of, I think it was over a hundred different haunted houses across the US. So I spoke to her for that. Um, and the whole essay is kind of about um, like, fear in general and subjectivity and you know what we see when we look at other people's photos and also about haunted houses <laughs> so um yeah so i have that out with granta great um i <laughs> uh, this is grant uh i had a piece of fiction actually come out in a feminist film magazine in amsterdam so i don't know how anyone's gonna get it <laughs> but i think you can order it uh and it is uh written from the perspective of gina davis's character in the movie the fly um i didn't mean to specialize in horror it just sort of happened um and then i'm working on a series of short stories uh also i do a lot of uh story doctoring for friends who are writing screenplays. So that's what I'm up to. This is Sachiko. Um, it's awesome hearing what y'all are working on. I am working on a collection of short stories. Um, they're all speculative fiction. They're all like conceptually driven, mostly exploring like themes of race and gender and queerness um, and yeah, tend to be like very bizarre, but also hopefully emotionally resonant. <laughs> I've been working on it for a while, so I'm kind of, I have like drafts and I'm vaguely putting together a pitch for agents. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. 
I'm just very intimidated by everyone else. Uh, congratulations to everybody. It's really exciting to hear what everyone else is working on and what's coming out for everybody. Um, I'm kind of always sitting on like a handful of, of short stories and uh, I've published a small handful of short stories, but um, in the past like year, I've written a novelette um, for a few different reasons. It's not something that I'm going to shop around or publish, but it's kind of just proof of concept. Um, the fact that that's something I can do. Um, so I, I really kind of hate to talk about a piece before it's even finished, but I am working on a novella that, you know, hopefully will develop into something that will be something that I can share kind of with, with a larger audience. That's exciting. We'll, we'll be waiting for it. Um, I'm, I'm always in the, in the, in the weeds of revising that screenplay that I had mentioned earlier. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of taking a shift myself into um, kind of reinserting myself into horror film by trying to write them. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm forever working on a novel, right? That's always happening in the background. But um, I think especially coming off of working on this anthology, um, it's made me even more motivated to um, flex my screenplay muscle. And I guess I'll have to employ Grant to doctor whatever script I write next since he's uh, put it out there in the world. Yeah, thank you all so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, I remember it was about, it was earlier in the spring, I saw a tweet on the uh, Skylight Twitter feed uh, of Feminist Press announcing this anthology. And I immediately reached out to Jizu and said, I, we need this. I need this. <laughs> we need this. Who do I talk to? How do we get it? When is it coming out? And uh, I was so excited that it was going to be out in the world and that it existed. And I said, bring me as many contributors as you can gather on one day, um, because we would love to hear about this and to talk to people about it. So I'm very excited that it's out in the world. People can get it at Skylight Books and we have already been selling through it. Um, I'll tell you that much. So I'm continuing to order more copies. So we have them in stock um, and all of our listeners can order a copy from Skylight Books or shop in store if you're local and wanna come visit us. Thank you again to all of our contributors and uh, panelists today, Joe Valisi, Prince Shakur, Tucker Lieberman, Sachiko Ragasta, Grant Sutton, Laura's Ma, and Karen Narby. We were so grateful to have you all. And as I mentioned, everyone will be hearing this on Halloween. Um, we set it up for a very spooky release. So we hope that you will mm -hmm. enjoy all of these essays and some spooky movies this season. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.